And for those of you that are going to stay with us for this class, let's open to the book of Habakkuk, please. The book of Habakkuk. And continuing on in our verse-by-verse study, going through this wonderful book of the Minor Prophets, Habakkuk, chapter 1, and we are uh, down in verse 12 today. And just to quickly recap what we've seen in verses 1 to 11, Habakkuk starts off, quick introduction, and then he poses a question to God. How long shall I cry, and thou will not hear? God, there's corruption throughout our land. Why aren't you doing something? And then verses 5 to 11, God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, another name for the Babylonians. I'm going to allow them to come in and do what they want to do. Do what comes naturally to them against Judah. That is completely wipe them out in a most vicious and and destructive manner. So verse 12, the prophet then responds with this. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment, and O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. So Habakkuk is acknowledging that God has answered the question, and he's also showing that he understands the answer. This, by the way, is a very good lesson in how to listen. When somebody explains something to you, if you are able to summarize it and explain it back to them, it shows that you fully got the message. So husbands and wives, this is a very good lesson even for those type of relationships on how to listen and how to make sure you're both on the same page. Haven't you ever explained something or had something explained to you and you, they said one thing but you heard something else? Right? Have you ever, all of us have experienced that at some point. So Habakkuk is explaining this back to the Lord. Now he starts off by saying, Art not thou from everlasting, O Lord my God? Why throw that in there? It seems like a, uh, it is an important fact about God, but why is it pertinent to this conversation? Well, he's, he's saying, God, you, because you're from everlasting, because you're the eternal one, uh, you are self-sufficient. You have seen the beginning and the end. You know what's going on. You're obviously more qualified to make these kind of decisions. You have authority. You are sovereign. You can can use these people if you want in this way. As a human being, finite, we don't have all knowledge. We are are not self-sufficient. We are not independent. We are dependent on everything around us, everyone around us. We are dependent on God for our existence. There's no way that we could possibly come up with a plan to fully bring justice to the world, not like God. So Habakkuk is acknowledging Jehovah as the self-sufficient one. That's what the name Jehovah means, self-sufficient one, the I am that I am. He says, you are in a position to make this call. And then he acknowledges two things. We shall not die. So he understands from God's statement, all of Judah is not going to be killed off and destroyed. The nation of Israel will continue to exist. They are just going to go into captivity for a while. They are going to suffer horribly, but they're not going to utterly and completely perish. This is something that God has reiterated over and over throughout Israel's history, all the way back to the days of Moses. You might remember that when they built the golden calves or made the golden calves, Uh, God said, I'm going to wipe out the nation, Moses, and start over with you. And then Moses negotiated with him and said, Lord, let's 
manifest your power rather through long-suffering and patience and don't wipe them out. But you see, even in that, God never intended to kill off every Jew in the world. God has promised them. He gave them an everlasting covenant that that will never happen. Uh, Just hold your place here in Habakkuk. Turn over to Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. Malachi, obviously the last prophet before John the Baptist shows up to preach. So after Malachi, you have about 400 years of silence. Yeah, They call them the silent years or the intertestamental period. So Israel has been through quite a bit. Malachi's writing this in about 400 B.C. So this is 100 and, let's say, 130 years after they've come back into their land. In, in Malachi 3.6, the Bible says, For I am the Lord... I change not. That's part of being the everlasting one, right? You you don't need to change and adjust. Everybody has to change and adjust to you. He says, therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Why haven't the Jews completely been wiped off the face of the earth? Because if you think about it, no other nation has been attacked like them. So many times, repeatedly throughout history, if you look at the intertestamental period, it's in the book of Daniel, Daniel 11, Daniel prophesied what would happen to them for the space of about 250 years, and he nailed it. There were were several wars, Syria in the north, Egypt in the south. Those two kings were fighting against each other. If you know your map, Syria and Egypt, they are the the two buns that make an Israel sandwich. (laughs) Israel's Israel's in the middle of that, and it's like an Israel hamburger, and they, they were made into mincemeat for a while because those two nations were just pounding each other constantly, and Israel got caught up in that. And they still are, right? You turn on the news any day of the week for the last 100 years, you're going to have some headline from the Middle East, some unrest in that part of the world. Now, wars happen all over, but Israel's constantly in the thick of it. Why haven't they ever completely been destroyed? I mean, utterly, to where there's no more Jews left because God made a promise to them. I'm never going to let that happen. I will punish you, but I'll never completely wipe you off the face of the earth. Uh, Come to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 25. You see, people say, well, you know, the Jews are a special group of people. They're extremely smart. They're good with money and so forth. And let's give credit where credit's due. They do have some intelligence among them, and they are good with money. They get that from their great, 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 great granddaddy Jacob, (laughs) He was a wheeler and a dealer, man. He knew how to, he knew how to make stuff happen with the, with the finances. But the reason the Jews haven't been wiped out is not because they have some great integrity in and of themselves as a nation. It's not because they are a great people just by their own natural abilities. It's because God made a promise. Simple as that. You know why I know for sure that when I die, I'm going to heaven? It's not because of my good works. It's not because of my own integrity or how hard I try or my own righteousness. It's because Jesus died on the cross for me and he offered me eternal life. When I accepted the offer, he said, now this is the promise that I'm promising you, even eternal life. 1 John 2, 25. See, my my salvation is secure, not because I'm keeping myself, but I'm kept by the power of God. Where do you find the power of God? It's in his word. Have you read that in Hebrews chapter 1? All things are upheld by the word of his power. The power is in his word because when he says it, shall he not do it? Hath he spoken, shall he not make it good? 
So that's where you find security is in God's promise. Now, Jeremiah 25, read with me starting in verse 12 here. It says, it, verses 8, 9, 10, 11, God is saying, I'm going to use Nebuchadnezzar to punish Judah. You're going to be in captivity 70 years. Verse 12, it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans and will make it perpetual desolations. And I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, even all that is written in this book, which Jeremiah hath prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of them also, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the work of their own hands. So God, you're going to use Nebuchadnezzar to punish Judah. But what about after that? He says, after that, I'm going to punish Nebuchadnezzar. Because Nebuchadnezzar, it's not as if Nebuchadnezzar was performing righteous deeds. And, and therefore God said, I can trust you. You're a man of God. Come and punish Judah. It wasn't like that. God knew that Nebuchadnezzar, a wicked man, a, fu a furious man, all God had to do was step back and say, all right, go ahead and do, do what naturally comes to you. I'll take my hands off so that Judah will get what they deserve. But then God steps in and says, okay, now that they've done what they wanted to do, I will punish them for the fury. And, and I showed you last week, they went too far. God had a plan to punish them a little, and Nebuchadnezzar took it way too far. So God steps in and says, I'll punish these Gentiles for what they did as well. And then, it, it, just to help you understand, verse 13, 14, what God's saying is many other nations are going to serve themselves of Israel. They will use Israel as servants. They will enslave them. This is what happened. After Babylon, there was Media Persia. After them, Greece. After them, Rome. And each time, God would allow these Gentiles to overtake the Jews and then later on punish those Gentiles for what they did. So come back to the book of Habakkuk, and you'll see why you need to know that and why Habakkuk was asking this. Habakkuk 1 and verse 12. So he says, Thou art from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine Holy One. We shall not die. God, we get that. We, we know that you are going to live up to your promise. O Lord, Thou hast ordained them, these Gentiles, for judgment. O mighty, and O mighty God, Thou hast established them for correction. So God, I understand you're going to use them to punish us, and you're not going to completely wipe us off the face of the map. So we get that. But here's Habakkuk's next concern, verse 13. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them, these Gentiles, that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked, that's the Gentiles, the Babylonians in this case, when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? Right, so in Judah was their corruption. Absolutely. The law was slacked. Nobody was trying to perform the words of the Lord. That nation was horribly backslidden. Now, if you were to compare them with the behavior of the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans were far worse. They had many more issues, bitter and hasty nation, right? They, they, they had problems. So when you compare the two, the Chaldeans were a more wicked people. Habakkuk's question is, all right, God, I get it. We're going to get punished we deserve it. You're going to let the Babylonians do the punishing. They are the instrument in your hand. Fair enough. But God, you're using a wicked nation 
Is that right? Are you, are you, God, allowed to do such a thing? Because you, verse 13, you're of purer eyes than to behold evil. So, God, you're punishing our wickedness, but it seems as if you're winking at the wickedness of the Babylonians. It's like you don't even care what they've done wrong, and you're just stepping back and going to let them come in, march through our land, destroy us, kill our women and children. God, is that okay for you to do that? How can you still be this holy, upright, pure God and not deal with the wickedness of the Chaldeans as well? You're, you're dealing with our wickedness. What about theirs? And that's why I've shown you the verses in Jeremiah, and it's many other places in the Old Testament, where God says, I'm going to punish you, but then I'm going to punish these people as well. I'm not forgetting what they've done wrong. I'm using them for this temporary purpose but in the long run, they are going to feel the, the weight of their deeds. They're going to get it as well. Verse 14, he's going to describe a little further now what these uh, Babylonians have been doing. He says in verse 14, And makest men as the fishes of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them. So just like we had in the verses before where God described the Chaldean people, now Habakkuk is showing that he also knows how the Chaldeans operate. These Babylonians are harsh people. He says they make men as the fishes of the sea. Now, I don't, I'm not a big fisherman, right? But I do enjoy, I do enjoy getting to the pond or the lake or the creek or the river. I don't know what you guys call it. What, what, I've often wondered about this. Struum. In Afrikaans, struum. It's a stream, yes? A stream. So, pachef struum. Is there a stream named Pachef? <laughs> I've always wondered that Pachef Struum. It's just the American in me. Pot, Chef, Struum. I have this picture of a guy cooking a poiki down by a stream somewhere. <laughs> Is that wrong? That's not how it works? Shame. It should be. When you drive into Pachastrum, there should be a welcome to Pachastrum, and you need a guy with a chef's hat on sitting by the poiki down by the water. <laughs> I think that should be our new mascot. Forget the tarantal. Let's get that pot with the chef in the strum. Way off topic. How did we get to that? Okay. Back, back to the strum. So I, I enjoy getting down to a body of water and fishing. I, I would do that for sport, right? And you can see in the next verse, verse 15, they take up all of them with their angle, that's a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their drag. Now, a drag is very similar to the, the net, the fisherman's net, but it, it gets used to drag the surface. So if there's any fish you didn't get or any things crawling, you know, you can, crabs, that kind of thing, you scoop it up in the, in the drag. The Babylonians, if I'm understanding this correctly, they are hunting men, but for sport. It's not as if they're fishing just to survive. The Babylonians don't need to conquer other lands just to survive. They're doing fine in Mesopotamia. But for sport, just to prove how strong they are, how, how much military might they have, let's go conquer nation after nation, and we will catch them in droves. We'll throw our net, and we'll catch hundreds of men, thousands of men at a time and lead them into captivity. And if there are any stragglers, you know, individuals trying to run away, we'll throw the hook and catch them one by one. And to them, it's just a big game. And unfortunately, as you read through world history, 
There are many times that some tyrannical ruler got it in his head to just kill people for the fun of it. Sometimes it's other nations, and sometimes it's his own people. Now, he'll claim that it's, you know, for some political or other reason, but at the end of the day, the guy was just a horribly wicked man and enjoyed watching other people suffer. You actually read about this all the way back in the beginning of your Bible in Genesis 10. There was a man named Nimrod. How many of you remember that name from Genesis 10? Nimrod. You know what, uh, where he was the king at? Babylon. He was the first king of Babel, right? So the Tower of Babel, all of that was built under his direction, under Nimrod. And the Bible describes him as a mighty hunter before the Lord. So people think, you know, he's out hunting animals. No, no, he was hunting people. And he was doing it for sport. That's the very foundations of the Babylonian people, of their civilization. And it has carried down all the way to the time of Habakkuk here. And he's, he knows these people. He says, God, these are horribly wicked people. They kill people just for fun. And God, can you look on this and allow that? Are you going to let them get away with it? And of course, as I've shown you in Jeremiah, I'm going to use their wickedness because Judah deserves a punishment. But I'm not going to let this slide forever. I'll wink while it's happening because it serves my end. But eventually, I will bring about justice for what they've done. Now, let me mention a few odds and ends here that sometimes come up. In verse 13, thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. When I first got saved, I heard several preachers using that portion. I, I didn't even know where it was at in the Bible. They just quoted that part of the verse and they would do it in an evangelistic sense. Now, here's how I heard it explained. They would say, the Bible says God cannot look on iniquity. So, therefore, he cannot allow sin to enter into heaven. So if you have sins that are not forgiven, you are not ready to enter heaven. You need to be saved. Now, that makes pretty good sense, yeah? The, the, if you want to use that in a preaching sense, in an evangelistic way, I understand what they were trying to get across. So this is one of those times where I say, that's good preaching. Amen. But that's not good teaching. Oh my. <laughs> that's, that's not true. Sin has entered into heaven. Sins that, this is why people sometimes ask this. Why does we read it in the end of the Bible, heaven and earth pass away, right? Yeah. Why get rid of heaven? We can understand the earth. I mean, this place is corrupt. But why get rid of heaven? What's wrong with it? It needs to be cleansed. It's, it's defiled. Sin has entered in there. And when we read here, thou art of purer eyes that, uh, to behold evil, it's not as if evil is there, and if God's eyes get to it, his eyes burn off, you know, and he's, oh, no, I can't. The Bible says in Proverbs 15, verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. So God sees it all. Not just, it's not like his eyes are not allowed to look at something that is wicked. He sees it. Habakkuk, Habakkuk's point is, God, when he says, look on it, are, are you allowed to look at it and then ignore it? You see that it's happening and then just go, oh, well, that's Habakkuk's point. So the way that these preachers use it, that sin, if it enters into, it, it can't enter into heaven because God's eyes can't look at something evil. That's just not true. Look, take your Bible, come to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Let's get verse number 6. 
All right, Job 1 and verse 6. I think maybe a, a, a simpler way to say this is God cannot tolerate sin. He can put up with it for a while. He can see that it's happening, but he will not tolerate it permanently. He will eventually do something. And that was Habakkuk's point. Why, why are you looking on it and not doing something? Job 1 verse 6. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God, those are angels. That's another term for angels. When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and who? Satan came also among them. Where is this happening? It's happening up in heaven. It's there before the throne. Satan came also among them. Verse 7, And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. So you can see this is a conversation taking place in heaven. So we understand from other places in the Bible that the devil, right, he, he was up in heaven and he sinned and was cast out. But he still has access to appear before the Lord even now. So that doesn't square with the preacher's way of using Habakkuk 1 to say God cannot look on something evil. Obviously he can. He's looking at the evil one standing right there in front of him. But God is not going to ultimately and forever tolerate the actions of, of the devil. He is going to put a stop to that at some point. All right, so come back to Habakkuk chapter 1. Let, let me deal with one other little preaching issue that I've heard. I, th this is more just for fun than for learning, but verse uh, 15, verse 15, they take up all of them with the angle. Now, this, this gets into good Texan preaching right here. I, I, I heard many, many of these Southern, these Southern American preachers say, bless God, everybody's got an angle. Everybody's got, they're coming at you with this angle. Everybody's got an angle. Everybody's got a scheme. The Bible says that this wicked man is going to take you up with his angle. Watch it. He's talking about a fish hook, right? It's a metaphor. It's not talking about pyramid schemes and such like that. But, you know, if you, if you want to just make good preaching out of it, help yourself. And then this next one, they catch them in their net. They go, you better watch out for that net. That there, brother, that's the internet. <laughs> if, if you look hard enough, you can find a verse for everything in the Bible. <laughs> the internet, that's the international network. I don't know if you know the longer version of the word internet, international network. And they said, this, this right here, this is the one world government. This is how they're going to unite the world. It's going to happen through the internet. You better stay off the internet. And they're <laughs> going to catch them in their net. Well, that's pretty good preaching, actually. I mean, you do need to be careful what you're doing on the internet. And let's be honest, once you get on the internet, uh, you are entangled in that web the World Wide Web. You're entangled in that web. And it's a sticky thing once you get in it, right? They, they, they do monitor what you're doing, where you're at, who you know, and they can uh, monitor voting patterns and they know what to advertise on your screen. It's a bit spooky. Now, Habakkuk is not, he's not saying anything about the internet or pyramid scheme. That's just things that you might hear somebody say while they're preaching. Now, there is one other very practical thing I do want to point out in verse 14. Describing the Babylonians, make us men as the fish, uh, fishes of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them. When the Babylonians, and for this matter, almost any nation, when they go to attack another nation, they first attack the head of that nation. If you can destroy the authority structure right, of that institution, whether it's a nation, 
whether it's a family, whether it's a church. Whatever institution you want to talk about, you attack the authority structure. Attack the head and the rest of the body will die, right? You aim at the head. So he says they have no ruler over them. So if you go back into the book of 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles and you read how Nebuchadnezzar did this, he would march into the nation and first thing he would depose the then king, whoever it was, Jeconiah, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah. He'd, he'd take that king out of that position and then he would put another, he would choose another Jew and say, you now, you're the king, but you're the king of my choosing. Now you better be good and listen to what I say and I'll let you be the king for as long as you are submissive to me. And that king would be okay for a few months or years and then try to rebel. And Nebuchadnezzar would come back and say, I told you, if you're naughty, I'm going to take you out. So he would take him into captivity and then choose another king and put him in that position. And this happened three times. He would always attack the authority structure. That's how the enemy works. He tries to attack the authority structure. He does, if there's no ruler over the people, this is how God set it up. He set up an authority structure. This is how it's been since the beginning. The Apostle Paul made note of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. The head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. So you have the Father, you have Christ, you have man, you have the woman. This is God's authority structure. So I don't like that. You know, I'm, I'm there. If I'm a woman, I'm at the bottom of the, of, of the whole system here, and that, that degrades me. Wait a minute. You're saying because you're under somebody else's authority, it's degrading. So is Jesus degraded? Is, is Jesus somehow a lesser being because he is in submission to the Father? If I read correctly, Philippians chapter 2, the Bible says he humbled himself and, and submitted to God the Father's authority. And because of that, the Father will one day acknowledge this, reward him for it, and exalt him, and every knee bows to him because of his willing submission. So when you read in the Bible about wives being submissive, you know what it says? Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands. No one's going to force you into that system. No one's going to force you to live by that structure. If you want things to work properly, if you want peace and order, quietness, happiness, if you want things to work as they should, then you submit to God's way of living. If you don't want to do it, don't do it, but then see how it turns out. This is what happened in the book of Judges. Let me, let me show you the verse. Come to the last verse in Judges, chapter 21, verse 25. It actually shows up one other time in chapter 17, verse 6, but you'll see it here. If you've ever read your Bible much, you know the book of Judges is a disaster of a time for Israel. Up and down constantly, God letting Gentiles come in and destroy them, left, right, and center. Why was it so bad? Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everybody got it? Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And ladies, this is not, this is not just a, a, a message targeted at you. To be honest, if you really want to see where the problem of submission lies, look at the men. This is advice I often give, you know, men come by the office, you know, I can't get my wife to submit and things aren't good in our home. She's constantly rebelling against the decisions I make. And my, my first response is, well, sir, you didn't bring your wife, so I can't talk about that. She's not here, so we can't fix that. 
But you're here, so let's talk about you for a minute. Could it be that you're reaping what you sowed? Could it be that she's just following your example? And I, I often get that, that look, with, huh? <laughs> what, what, me? No, 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 I came to complain about her. Yes, but you're here. So you have a responsibility to submit to the people over you, starting with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your head, right? The head of the man is Christ. So could it be that your wife is simply mirroring your behavior towards Christ? And usually it's a sobering thought. So this is not something targeted just at, at women. It's not like women only are supposed to be submissive. Men as well, especially men, because we have this ultimate authority of our ultimate responsibility of submitting to somebody we cannot see and thereby set an example. If you really want to see the perfect example of submission, study the life of Christ. Study the life of Christ. Never a man put it into practice like him. Because everything he did, he said, I can of mine own self do nothing. He didn't find that degrading. It worked. It got the job done. So what will the enemy do? He comes in and wants to take the head, take the authority, the ruler, out. And once you take that out, you have sheep without a shepherd. What did Zechariah the prophet say? Smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. So how do you destroy a nation? Just corrupt the authority structure so that the people of that nation have no respect for the people in authority. You corrupt them, corrupt the head, and the body will spoil. It'll rot. Example, South Africa. I, don't, I have not met, black or white, doesn't matter. I've talked to both, Indian as well. I have not met one South African that has any confidence in their government. Now, Listen, lest you think this is just an attack on South Africa, I don't trust our government in America either, especially Biden. He cannot form a complete sentence. <laughs> I never thought I'd see a man that gave Zuma a run for his money. <laughs> right? It's, it's incredible. Anyway, I'm not, I don't want to get off into that. Take your Bible. Come to the book of Numbers chapter 27. Numbers chapter 27. Numbers 27, let's get verse 15. Numbers 27, 15. And Moses spake unto the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation. So Moses knows his time is short, and he wants somebody to fill the void of leadership when he's gone. Verse 17, which may go out before them, and which may go in before them, and which may lead them out, and which may bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep which have no shepherd. Moses knew the incredible importance of having strong leadership in that nation. And again, this is true of a nation, it's true of a home, it's true of a church. Come to the book of Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. So Moses' prayer was, God, please give them good leadership so that they are not as sheep that don't have a shepherd. All right? Fast forward 1,500 years, Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, look at what he sees in verse 36, Matthew 9, 36. It says, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted. They were getting discouraged. 
and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd, no strong leadership. The people did not trust the Pharisees and Sadducees because, shocker, they were corrupt. And if you wanted to get something done, you couldn't do it according to the law. You had to do it under the table. And once you get to that point, it's very hard to make any forward positive progress. All right, come back to Habakkuk now. Chapter 1. Let's do our best to finish these last couple of verses. So God, what are you going to do about these Chaldeans? Uh, They're wicked people. They're worse than we are. Verse number 15, they take up all of them with the angle and they catch them in their net and gather them in their drag. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. You see, it's a sport to them. The more people they kill and capture, the more fun they're having. It's it's not about, oh, we, you know, the, the, the Jewish people are bad people and we're stepping in to put a stop to Jewish atrocities. It's not that at all. Because sometimes that's what happens. If you know of some other nation in the world that are murdering their own people, it is the responsibility of other nations to do something about that. You don't sit idly by and let some other nation commit genocide. You do something. That's a righteous cause. But this is just for sport. Verse 16, Therefore they sacrifice under their net and burn incense under their drag because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. They're getting rich, spoils of war, they're winning. So whatever, whatever they're using to win these battles, not just their weapons, but they pray to their gods, Bel, Molech, these other gods, and they say, well, all praise Baal, all praise Nebo, all praise these other gods. And whatever means they use to get wealthy, whatever helps them to prosper, they then begin to worship that thing. Now, to make this a little more practical, right, the same thing is true even in our westernized, modernized society. Whatever makes me healthy, whatever makes me wealthy, whatever prospers me, I'll worship that. I will make that the chief thing in life. So people end up worshiping their jobs, right? They worship the job. This is, by the way, if it's not a job, right, that's more of a secular way of viewing this, But I've seen this happen over and over again in Malawi. I've seen it here a few times as well. Somebody goes to the witch doctor, and the witch doctor says, give me this much money, and I will bring about this uh, prosperity in your life. I'll make this thing come right. Somebody will fall in love with you. You'll get the job. And then it actually happens. You know what they do? They say, well, all praise the witch doctor. Must be true. If it works, it's right. Do you see how that thinking is? If it works... It must be right. Just because it works doesn't mean it's right. The end does not always justify the means. But these people, when it, because it's working so well, they worship their, their system. They worship these false gods because, hey, it must be working. right? We worship Nebo. We worship Baal. And it's working. We're getting what we want, so we must be right. Well, just because you win the war doesn't mean you're the righteous one. Lots of wicked people win wars. Lots of wicked people get jobs, have families, prosper in this world. That, that says nothing about how righteous you are. Now, unfortunately, this same thinking has crept into Christianity, hasn't it? That because if I'm worshiping God, God is going to make me wealthy, healthy, prosperous, right? And if, if I don't get prosperous, if I don't get healthy and wealthy, then evidently I've got the wrong religion and they switch to something else. That's, that's just the, the wrong mentality. That's not how you think. But that's how the Chaldeans thought. 
And Habakkuk's concern is, God, these people, they are worshiping their false gods. They don't realize that you are the one allowing them to win these battles. They are actually attributing their success to these other things and not you. So God, are you going to let this go on? Are you going to let them keep thinking this? Verse 17, shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? God, you let them win. You use them to do this. Then they give credit to their gods. They give credit to themselves, credit to their weapons. And God, by you not stepping in to set the record straight, are you not encouraging them to go do this more and more? Aren't they going to continually slay the nations? When are you going to put a stop to this? Well, again, I, I bring that back to our present day. We see this false, this let's call it, wrong mentality, this wrong approach to life. When is God finally going to step in and say, listen, the prosperity gospel is not a gospel. It's just a big fat lie to trick people into following something other than the biblical Jesus. When is God going to put a stop to this? He will eventually. Habakkuk raised the problem, and it's a fair question. Why do you allow the wicked to prosper? This has been a question since the beginning of time. If you, we, time won't allow it right now, but Psalm 73, if you want to just make a note of it, the whole psalm is about this question. Why do the wicked prosper? So Asaph, that was one of David's choir masters. Asaph wrote that song. And for the first 13, 14, 15 verses, God, the wicked, everything they do, they get away with it, and it works. And then Asaph says, after I saw this happen enough, I almost quit. I almost quit worshiping God, following God. I just gave up because there's so much corruption. You know what Asaph says? I went down there to the house of God, and I studied up on it, and I got my answers. And now I see that God has set the wicked in slippery places. Because anybody, listen, I, I don't know if you've ever tried it. Here in South Africa, not too many chances to try this. Have you ever tried to stand on the ice on like a, a frozen pond? Here, I'll get in the, in the middle of the camera there. But there we go. <laughs> You're standing on that frozen pond. You can do it for a second, right? But as soon as you try to make any forward movement, backward movement, whatever, whoop, boom, down you go. I'm not going to illustrate that part. <laughs> You can stand for a moment, but you cannot stand there forever. You are going to fall, guaranteed. Right? That, that's how it goes. So God, the Bible says you've put them in slippery places because they're standing for a moment, but the wicked are not going to get away with it forever. Asaph figures it out. By the end of the chapter, he says, God, I got the best reward there is. They have money. They have temporary prosperity. I have you. I have you, and that's enough for me. So Habakkuk, he's raising this similar question. God, these people are horribly wicked. And okay, you're going to use them to punish us, fine, we deserve it. But what about them? By, uh, by you not doing anything, God, you're just encouraging them to do more of it. So verse, just to get the idea of this, chapter 2, verse 1, because it, the thought kind of continues here. Habakkuk says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. <laughs> Which is a fun way of, Habakkuk says, hmm, I got a point. And I'm just going to sit here until you answer me, God. So I'm going to sit here on my tower and just watch for the answer. Because, you know, watchtower. I'm just going to sit here and watch for the answer. And <laughs> look at the end of the verse. He says, and will watch to see what he will say unto me 
and what I shall answer when I am reproved. So I'm up here in my watchtower waiting for you to answer. I want to see what you got to say to that because God, I think I got a good point. I got you on this one. And I'm busy working on my response because I know you're going to prove me wrong. You're going to reprove me. I know you're going to say that I'm wrong about this, but I'm working on an answer so that when you come back to me, I'm going to come back to you. Habakkuk is ready for an argument, but what comes next? God's going to shut the whole thing down and say, all right, Habakkuk, stop. Sit down, get your pen out, write this down because this is going to be the final word. And after this, the conversation stops. We'll get into that next week. All right, let's all stand if you would. All right, Father, thank you for this time to study the Word of God. Thank you for how much truth we find in it. And Lord, help us to be mindful of the structure that you've given to us in our lives, in our homes, in our society, in this church. Lord, our final authority being this book that we hold in our hands, we thank you for it. We do pray that you bless the service to come and our day. God, we want to spend it in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.